just let all the everyone get settled there and uh, hopefully you're able to pick up one of the uh, outlines uh, there's probably a few laying around if you weren't able to do that but that uh, again may be of a help to you and if it's not just put it aside that's okay as well in the series of messages or the six messages that I have we've been considering the glory of God confining ourselves just to um, several of the incidents when Israel left Egypt and spent time at Mount Sinai and we want to continue that this morning we've considered the area of God's glory and protection at the Red Sea that was on Sunday and we considered the area of God's uh, glory and um, guidance the glory cloud that uh, led the people we considered also yesterday morning God's glory and revelation uh, and this morning we're following that pattern and we want to look at God's glory and worship God's glory and worship so at the top of your handout you can see that I've entitled this worship that enjoys God's glory I'm not sure that enjoys is the right word maybe you can help me and I can revamp my outline after this I was looking for something worship that I almost thought about the word procures God's glory but that didn't seem very warm um, worship that receives God's glory um, you know in other words because we worship the right way God manifests himself to us so maybe you can think of a good word and uh, I can put that in my outline from now on but that's the idea here you can take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Exodus and chapter 40 I'm actually going to begin by reading the last two verses of chapter 39 but you can turn there Exodus chapter 40 and that will put us in good stead we um, We'll have a word of prayer and commit our time to the Lord. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity now to open your word. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold in your word the things that you have for us. Guide our minds and our thoughts and minister these things to us, that we would be uh, Lord, imitators of yourself, and Father, we would be followers of the word that you give to us. So bless our time, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. The background that we're going to look at, well, maybe I should say in Exodus 40, we're at a point where Moses is assembling the tabernacle. The background to this is, of course, Exodus 25, God telling Moses to build a tabernacle, Bezalel then making and constructing the elements of the tabernacle, the structure and the furnishings, and now in Exodus 40, they're assembling all of that into a structure. So that's the background to what we're going to read. Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus 39, verse 42. <clears throat> According to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel made all the work. And Moses did look upon all the work, and behold, they had done it, as the Lord commanded. Even so, they had done it. And Moses blessed them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, on the first day of the first month shalt thou set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. And now from verse 3 down to verse 15, God is giving the instruction on how they're to assemble the tabernacle. Okay, you see that? Verse 1, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, okay, set up the tabernacle. So notice, and thou shalt, 
See, this is God talking to Moses. And Moses, thou shalt put therein the ark of the testimony. Verse 4, and thou shalt bring in the table. Verse 5, and thou shalt set up the altar of gold. Verse 6, and thou shalt set up the altar burnt offering. Verse 7, and thou shalt set up the laver. Verse 8, and thou shalt set up the court. And verse 9, and thou shalt take the anointing oil and anoint Aaron and his sons. Verse 12, and thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons. Verse 13, and thou shalt put upon Aaron the holy garments. Verse 14, and thou shalt bring his sons and clothe them with the coats, and thou shalt anoint them as thou didst anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. For the anointing oil shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Okay, so here's God's instruction. You can picture this. I remember back 20 years ago when we constructed our building in Cardwell and out on the property, there's the bricks and there's the trusses and there's the Rio rod and there's a couple pallets of cement. And there. So here, here's all the things of the tabernacle laid out there that Bezalel has, construct, has made. And God says, okay, now it's time to take all of that and put it together. So he gives this instruction. Now, beginning with verse 15, or excuse me, verse 16, we're going to see that Moses di did just what God instructed. And notice the change of the pronoun. Verse 17, or excuse me, verse 16, Thus did Moses according to all that the Lord commanded him. So did he. And it came to pass in the first month, in the second year of the first month, we'll come back to that, of the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. And Moses reared up the tabernacle, verse 19, and he spread abroad the tent, verse 20, and he took and put the testimony into the ark, verse 21, and he brought the ark, verse 22, and he put the table. See, you can see Moses is following the instructions of God. Verse 24, and he put the candlestick in the tent of the congregation. Verse 26, and he put the golden altar in the tent. Verse 28, and he set up the hangings at the door of the tabernacle. Verse 30, and he put the labor, labor between the tent of the congregation. Verse 33, and he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar and set up the hangings of the court. So Moses finished the work then. You catch the text. God's instructions, and he set it up, and he set it up, and he put it in, and he put it in then. Don't miss the word then. God's instructions, Moses did it, and then the glory of God fell. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we'll end there because yesterday we looked at verses 37 and 38. <clears throat> Yesterday, in one of the morning sessions, I began by quoting A.W. Tozer. And this morning, I want to again begin with a statement that he made. This time in relationship to our topic and the passage we just read. Tozer writes, I'm going to say something to you which will sound strange, because we're not used to hearing it within our Christian fellowships. We are saved to worship God. God wants worshipers first. Jesus did not redeem us to make us workers. He redeemed us to make us worshipers. And then out of the blazing worship of our hearts springs our work. The Christian church exists to worship God first of all. And then in his little book on entertainment and worship, Tozer goes on to comment further on that assessment. 
Now, Tozer is by no means infallible, and his assessments are not inerrant. But I can't help but think that if Moses were alive today, that he would agree with Tozer. Especially after this tabernacle incident, when the glory of God filled the tabernacle with the presence of God. You see, there's a reason that happened. There's a reason why the glory of God filled the tabernacle. God's glory and presence are not automatic just because a group of people meet to sing hymns and listen to preaching and then they call it worship. The manifestation of God's presence when his people gather for religious devotion is a divine response to worship that meets God's criteria for worship. And it's this subject that, that stands before us this morning in these closing verses of Exodus. There is a reason the glory <coughs> of God, <coughs> excuse me, there's a reason the glory of God filled the tabernacle. What was that reason? What circumstances must exist in worship today for God's glory to fall and his presence to be manifested? Well, in answering that question, we're going to begin where we began with all of our studies. That's with the background and the context. In answering that question, the first thing to do is to examine the context of Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. We're going to do that very briefly, but I think this is important before we move to the interpretative, interpretive points. So we're going to do this looking at the context of these two verses. We're going to very briefly um, consider the context of or the content of the chapters leading up to this incident. And then we're going to consider very briefly the timeline involved in the incident here. So let's begin with the chapter content in Israel's activity. Yesterday morning, a little background. Okay, yesterday morning we examined Exodus 19 and 20 and Moses meeting with God on Mount Sinai to mediate the covenant relationship between himself and Israel. So how did we get from the top of Mount Sinai to nine months later, this tabernacle? And Moses not going up on the mount anymore, now he goes into the tabernacle. How did we get from that point to this point? Well, first of all, as you know, Back in chapters 25 to 33, Moses ascended Mount Sinai for the first period of 40 days. And what happened up there? Well, that was when God gave Moses the instructions on the people bringing an offering and then the building of this tabernacle. And God laid out specific instructions down to even the dimensions of the ark and the laver and all the little gold things that are around it. God gave specific instructions about that. Well, what happened? Well, Moses came down off the ark and, and uh, Bezalel was empowered with wisdom from God. And in verses, or chapters 34 to 39, um, Moses then went back up for another 40 days, and when he came down this time, um, Bezalel began, I'm, I'm going to use the word constructing, not like this kind of constructing, but he began to construct and piece together and build and manufacture, if I could use that word, and that's not a very warm term, but he began to manufacture um, the furniture and the curtains and the structure and all of the details related to the ark, or related to um, the tabernacle. And so when we come to chapter 40, Bezalel has completed that building process, 
and the furniture of it. And this chapter, as we've read, and as I pointed out as we read, this chapter details the assembling of the pieces of the tabernacle into a standing structure. And of course, as men, we relate to that because we're thinking, you know, we have the tendency to term, uh, think in terms of building and we can see the cement and the sand and all these things out there. So we as men can relate to that kind of building thing. And that's what was going on here in chapter 40. But you know what's really interesting is back in chapter 39, verse 43, look what it says before they actually constructed all of this. It says, and Moses did look upon all the work and number two behold they had done it as the Lord had commanded even so they had done it and number three Moses blessed them the first thing that happened Bezalel probably came to Moses and said look Moses I think we're all done so the first thing that happened is Moses looked upon the work Moses inspected what Bezalel had made and what he determined secondly was that Bezalel had done it just like God commanded. That's what he was looking for. God had told him up on the mount, this is how you build the tabernacle. So Bezalel did it. Now Moses comes before they set it. Moses wants to make sure that it was done exactly like God said. So he examined it, he determined it was, and then it says, and he blessed the people. Now, people can't bless people. This kind of phraseology is just simply indicating that Moses is asking God to, to give to his people a blessing. But part of behind that is the fact that to ask God to do that the implication is that God approves of what was done so far. God's not going to bless if he doesn't approve it. And if you study this concept of blessing, one of the resources had a couple of really excellent pages on this about what blessing is in the Old Testament and what's involved in that and what God does. And there's this approval in God blessing. There's that semblance. So the assumption of divine approval here. So Moses inspects, it's just like what God said. So I'm assuming from the text that then God indica or Moses indicated this to God and the Lord came back in verse 1 of chapter 40 and the Lord spake to Moses saying, okay, it's time to piece together now what Bezalel has done. So we have God giving instruction and a pattern for building the tabernacle. Bezalel constructs it, Moses assembles the tabernacle, and the glory of God fills it. How long did all of that take? What do you think? I mean, I get digging around like this, I get kind of curious about that. I think, you know, these kinds of things, I thought, how long did all that take? What do you think? Well, we can come pretty close to figuring out how long it took Bezalel to construct the tabernacle and make the pieces. Because if you go back, and we won't go there, well, you're in chapter 40. Chapter 40, verse 17 says, And it came to pass in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. There's a reference to time. And the reference to time is being based, see, the first month of the second year. What do you mean the second year? Well, if you go back to Exodus 12, you'll find that on the first day of the first month of the first year, Israel left Egypt. First day, first month, first year. Now it's the first day, first month, second year. So there's a year from, from the time Israel left Egypt until the um, erecting of the tabernacle, that's a year. What happened during that year? Chapter 19, let's go back now. Okay, I'm breaking it up. Chapter 19, verse 1 tells us that the first three months of the year, it took Israel three months to go from Egypt down to Mount Sinai. So now I have nine months left of the year. 
what happened in those nine months? Well, back here, 40 days Moses went up on the mount. 40 days Moses went up on the mount. How much time is that? 80 days. What's that? That's almost three months. But in that time period, also there was chapters 19 and 22 where Moses was going up and down on Mount Sinai Gate in the Covenant and the Ten Commandments. And then there was chapter 32 and the Golden Calf Incident and chapter 33 getting the people straightened out. I'm going to allow 10 days for that. So in other words, you've got a year, three months to get to Mount Sinai, roughly three months um, uh, three months to get to Mount Sinai, and then three months, um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Then three months for those 40 days, 40 days. So now I've got six months left. And if you work through um, uh, Exodus, the remaining chapters of Exodus, verse 40, you'll find that it took about six months for Bezel, for, it took about six months for the people to bring their offering and Bezalel to construct the pieces of the tabernacle. And that brings you then to chapter 40, verse 17, and rounds out the year. So it took about six months for this all, all this construction to take place. Now, one little interesting thought, and this is all on your sheet there under number two, if you follow that, the context of time. One little thought. One year. Everybody got that down? That's not hard. But one month, it tells us in Numbers 10, 11 to 13, that one month, 20 days after the glory filled the tabernacle, Israel left Mount Sinai. So there, three months, they're there a year, nine months are there. Then one month, 20 days. That's about 48 to 50 days. Depending on if your month has 28 days or 30 days. That's the reason I say 48 to 50. Depends on how you calculate that. And during those 48 to 50 days, you know what happened in there? All of Leviticus took place. And Numbers 1-1 to Numbers 10-11 took place. So for 50 days, Leviticus 1 to Numbers 10, 11, that's what's taking place during those 50 days. And then on that day, one month, 20 days after the glory filled the tabernacle, the glory lifts off the tabernacle and God says, let's go. And it's time to leave and go on their journey. Three months, nine months, six of which was to construct all of those pieces, they reared up the tabernacle. And that, you know, I mean, that, that may have taken two or three days or whatever. We're not, you know, right strict on the time. And then 48 to 50 days later, they left. Now, that's the context and background to what we read here in chapter 40. So out of all of that, what are the key points that inform us of this subject of God's glory and worship. Well, there are three of these. They're listed on the outline that I gave you. And in looking at these, particularly the first one, we're going to go back and just recover a little material that we had yesterday morning. Got a fly. My dad used to say, because he was a pastor, when you get a fly like this, you got a fly trying to get in the ministry. And he'd wave that thing off, you know. So, here we are. We're going to recover a little bit. Okay? Point one. The first point of, that help us in interpreting and gaining from this is this. The purpose for constructing the tabernacle was that God might dwell with his people. And remember what I said on Saturday. Okay? We're going down in the forest now and we're looking at individual trees. And then we're going to back out and put the trees together and have something like a fine crafted piece of furniture like this. 
Okay, so stay with me as we look at the little individual trees. The first one is this. The purpose for constructing the tabernacle was that God might dwell with his people. Now, we noted some references yesterday about this. Exodus 25, 8 to 9 is the very first one where God said, Build the tabernacle that I may dwell among you. Exodus 29, 45 to 46, some of you are taking notes, you might want to jot that down, says the same thing. So does Leviticus 26, verses 11 to 13. Now to date, God has not had a dwelling place amongst his people. Not only would Moses have to ascend Mount Sinai to commune with God on behalf of the people, but the people were actually afraid to hear God's voice and come close to him. So God is going to change all of that by creating a facility where he could dwell and where the people could approach him and commune with him and worship him. And the tabernacle was going to be the visible indication of that. The tabernacle would represent God's abiding as opposed to his occasional presence with his people. It would represent, if I could say, it would represent God's home on the earth, so to speak. And since the people were living in portable tents as they journeyed to Canaan, God's home at this point would also be in the form of a tent, albeit an ornate one, constructed from the finest fabrics, metals, and gems. But even though there was a tabernacle... How would God commune with sinful people in that tabernacle? What was going to make that possible? Well, two things in particular that I would point out, two means that God indicated to us. Number one, by means of the ark and particularly the mercy seat over the ark. And I think we're familiar enough with that that we're not going to take the time to turn to the reference, but the reference would be Exodus 25, verse 8, and verses 21 to 22, as well as Exodus 30, verse 6, and Exodus 30, verse 36. But we'd be familiar with that, that you've got that ark, you've got that mercy seat, and of course there was the what? The sprinkling of the blood. So that is a second means, the area of sacrifice. Now up to this point in Exodus, there hasn't been anything stated about sacrifice, but it has been implied in the fact that Bezaleel was to construct a burnt offering altar. And then of course in Leviticus, God is going to verbally give instructions about sacrifice. So God desired to meet with his people by these means, the ark and sacrifice. In other words, folks, here's a point regarding worship. In other words, God would meet with his people, but on his terms. Worship would be on his terms, not those determined by the people. Now we're going to come back to this again in a moment, but here is God indicating to his desire to dwell with his people, to commune with them, to manifest his presence with them, to receive worship from them. So he had the tabernacle built and sacrifices offered, but the whole thing is on his terms. It's according to what he stipulates. Now we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But it's according to God's terms. Now, that leads to a second point. Because God's worship is on, because worship is on God's terms, and this is on your outline there, number two, because worship is on God's terms, Moses constructed the tabernacle according to what God commanded. Exactly, precisely as God commanded. In other words, the tabernacle, and you're aware of this, right? The tabernacle was built according to the pattern that God gave. 
And you can go back to Exodus 25, verse 8, verse 9, and it says there that God gave the pattern for the tabernacle, and then it goes on in the next couple of chapters, two or three chapters, and it says, and God said, here's how to make the ark. Here's how to make the table of showbread. And he gave the dimensions, and it was covered with gold or whatever, and it had these little knops around it, and it had little corners on it, and it had little... God gave all those specific details after the pattern. God had this all... Planned out. So the tabernacle, folks, was not constructed according to what Moses or Bezalel thought, as noble as their ideas may have been. And Moses and Bezalel didn't take a survey of the people to solicit ideas for its building. Now, we might do that today. And when, back in 97, when we constructed our building in Cardwell, I put a little box out. I wanted everybody to have a bit of input into that. And so we put a little box out, a little slot, and people for several weeks, if they had an idea about the building, you know, the size of the parking lot, or, you know, the ladies always had some ideas about the kitchen or whatever, everybody could put there. So we might do that today, but this, this back here, God stipulated how it was to be constructed there was a pattern. There was a blueprint. So Moses and Bezalel built it just like God said. Now, what I wanted you to do with me right now is do something that I think is fun. You might not think it's fun, but even if you don't, just go along with me and humor me, okay? I want us to do a little comparison. Now, I knew we were going to do it, so I put in my Bible three paper clips where there are three passages. And we're going to compare God's instruction. Let me take the ark. God's instruction on how to build the ark, chapter 25. Then we're going to look at chapter 37 where Bezalel did the instruction. And then we're going to look in chapter 40 where the Holy Spirit makes a statement about what they did. And what you're going to note is the Holy Spirit confirms that Bezalel constructed just like God said on every detail. So, I see, see I got my paper clip. There they are, right there. Okay, you don't have paper clips. But you could take and put one finger there in Exodus 25, and you could put one figure in Exodus 37, and then I got my thumb in Exodus 40. Now, we're just going to look at two pieces of furniture with this comparison, and that will be enough to show us that they build exactly like God said. Let's look at the ark. That's a very important piece of furniture in their worship, right? Well, look what it says. Exodus 25 Verse 10, and God telling Moses now how it should be built. And they, the people, Bezalel, and they shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits. Some of you are builders. You can relate to this. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. All right, keep your finger there. Turn to chapter 37 and verse number 1. Okay, Exodus 37 and verse number 1. What does it say? And Bezalel made the ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half was the length of it, and a cubit and a half the breadth of it, and a cubit and a half the height of it. That's what God said. But is that accurate? Is that, did he really do what God said? Chapter, well, hang on. We'll come to chapter 40 in just a moment. Look also at chapter 25, verse 11. Further details about the ark. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and thou shalt make it a crown of gold round about. Look at chapter 37, verse 2. 
Bezalel, and he overlaid it with pure gold within and without and made a crown of gold to it round about. Look at chapter 25, verse 12. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be in the one side, and two rings in the other side of it. All right, look at chapter 37, verse 3. And he cast for it four rings of gold to be set by the four corners of it, even two rings upon the one side, and two rings upon the other side of it. The wording, folks, is almost verbatim. And I'm not drawing our attention to the words. I'm drawing our attention to the fact that here in chapter 25, God gave instructions. And right there in chapter 37, Bezalel did what God said right there down to the very measurement. So what did God think of that? Well, in chapter 40, we have a record not that Moses gave us and not that Bezalel gave us. Chapter 40, folks, you look at the wording, is the Holy Spirit giving a testimony as to what they did. Look at chapter 40, verse 20. And he, okay, we got the inspired word of God given by the Holy Spirit. This is God's testimony here. And he, Moses, took and put the testimony into the ark and set up the staves on the ark and put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the covering and covered the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. God gave instruction. Bezalel did it. Moses inspected it. And the Holy Spirit comes back and confirms and says, they did it just like God commanded. Now, you can go to the table of showbread. You can go to the lampstand. You can go to the altar of incense, the altar burnt offering, the laver, the clothing for Aaron. You can go to all of those. And some of you really like doing this on the computer. You can set up two columns. Here's what God said in Exodus 25. And right where you can match across the words, Exodus 37, and right across Exodus where you can get all that matched up on the computer. You know, some, some people are really like poking around like that. And you'll see that matches right across, right across, right across. They did exactly what, in fact, you're in Exodus 40. Look what it says. Look in verse 23, at the end of verse 23. Verse 22, and he put the table in the tent of the congregation, the end of verse 23, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 24, and he put the candlestick in the tent of the congregation, the end of verse 25, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 26, and he put the golden altar in the tent of the congregation, the end of verse 27, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 28, and he set up the hangings of the door of the tabernacle, the end of verse 29, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 30, and he set up the labor between the tent of the congregation, the end of verse 32, as the Lord commanded Moses. And the whole thing is actually summed up prior to their doing it in verse number 16, when it says, Thus did Moses according to all that the Lord commanded, so did he. Do you know who said those words in verse 16? Look at the context. Those words are not attributed to Moses and they're not attributed to Bezalel. Those are the words of the Holy Spirit confirming what Moses did. That, that's what God is saying about what Moses did. He did everything that I said to do. So folks, here's something else that contributes to God manifesting his presence in times of worship. Worship is God's desire to meet with us, but God manifests himself during worship when what is done is according to what he has commanded. Now, we hear a lot about worship wars today. But God stipulates it. And it is, folks, according to what God has commanded. And that leads to this third component on your sheet. The glory of God filled the tabernacle in response to appropriate worship. Now, 
In Exodus 40, the verses we've read, the term worship is not used. But the coming details about the tabernacle and the sacrifices in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy indicate that worship is what is in view and what is involved with the tabernacle. This is simply a transitional period of time, but it's going to talk about worship and the tabernacle and what's in view here of God filling it with His glory is, is, is involved in that worship and preparing for that. Not only meeting with God, but offering to Him the worship of which He is worthy. So my point is this. God manifested His presence to His people in response to appropriate worship. Now, let's get some verses on that. Go with me to Exodus 29. Okay, let's see what we got here. Exodus 29. Turn over there with me, Exodus 29. And look down. Now, yesterday we read verses 45 to 46. See that? And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. Okay, we saw that yesterday. But yesterday I didn't read the context and I didn't read it on purpose because I was saving it for today. Go back to verse 22. Or excuse me, verse 42. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. How did God do that? It says he sanctified with his glory, and that's what we just read in chapter 40. That was God setting apart the tabernacle for divine use. And six months prior to that happening in chapter 29, six months prior to that, God said, if you do, because what's in the chapters before this? All the instructions about the tabernacle and the priest's garments and the altar. They're all back there, chapter 25 to 29. And if you do that, like I said, I will sanctify that when set it apart for my use with my glory. And the significance of this, folks, is that up until this point, God communed with his people from the top of Mount Sinai. But now God leaves Mount Sinai, and I don't know whether the people could actually see the glory moving. My impression in Scripture is that they didn't. You know, the glory was there, and they watched as it came down. I don't, I don't find that in Scripture, but they were used to it being up there, and then they saw it, they saw God's glory. Now, because of folks, how, how would the invisible God, how would the invisible God show that he had come to dwell among them by means of the tabernacle and not Mount Sinai? How's he going to show them that that has changed? By visibly displaying his presence by filling the tabernacle with the glory cloud that the people had come to associate with his presence. Up there in Mount Sinai, the glory cloud leading them yesterday morning, the glory cloud of the Red Sea, they had come to associate that with God's presence and now they see the cloud and God's glory fill the tabernacle. And the second significant part about this, folks, and this is very interesting, is that now in Exodus 40, verse 30, did you know what? Moses can't go in the tabernacle. Did you know that? Look at Exodus 40, verse 34. Moses can't go in the tabernacle now. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Sorry, I got... I got it's verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon. 
And the glory of the Lord filled it. Up until this point, Moses entered right into the glory up there on Mount Sinai. But now Moses is barred from the tabernacle, the one that he just inspected. And the reason for that is that now the tabernacle is God's house. And now by occupying his house through his glory and temporarily keeping others out, God showed Moses and all of Israel that the house was his and his alone. And if you were going to meet with him, you would have to do it on his terms. You can't just buzz into God's house and worship and buzz home. If you're going to come and meet with God, and I don't want to get ahead of where we're going here, but you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to offer to meet with God. You're going to have to offer to God a worshipful response to his manifestation. So let me just continue where I'm at. Like that was, that was a side point. I don't have that in there. So now it appears it appears now that God is in his house and no one can meet with him. That's what you would think. If Moses can't go in, how in the world are the rest of us going to do that? Well, remember, God stipulated sacrifices through which the people can know him and come to enjoy his presence. And that's what Leviticus 9 is about Go over there with me. Leviticus 9. This is fascinating. Look at this. Leviticus chapter 9. Now remember what I said yesterday? Leviticus 9 is the, is the offering of the first sacrifices in connection with the tabernacle. So look what God says. Verse 3. And unto the children of Israel thou shalt speak, saying, Take ye a kid of the goats for a sin offering. All right, you got that? Sin offering? And a calf, take a calf and a lamb, both of the first year without blemish, for a, number two, a burnt offering. And number four, as a bullock and a ram, also a bullock and a ram, for a peace offering. To sacrifice before the Lord and a meat offering mingled with oil, for today the Lord will appear unto you. So what happened? Verse 4. Also a bullock, excuse me, also a bullock uh, and a ram for peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord, and a meat offering mingled with oil, for today the Lord will meet with you. So verse 5. They brought that which Moses commanded before the tabernacle. What did they bring? Verse 3, a, a kid and a calf and a bullock. And I'm, I'm just shortening. There was the ram in there as well, but they brought those. So verse 6, and Mo, they brought it, verse 5, verse 6, and Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. You know why God's glory is going to appear unto them? Because they offered the sacrifice. So, verse 8, Aaron therefore went up unto the altar and slew the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Now, in verse 8, it's called the sin offering. Down in verse 13, it's called the burnt offering. So that's what's being referred to, the first offering. Then verse 15, and he brought the people's offering and took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people, and slew it. And offered it. Verse 18, he slew also, now, the third offering, the bullock and the ram for sacrifice for peace offerings, which was before the people. God stipulated the sacrifices, and he said, if you do it, my glory will appear. You know what they did? They went and did it. Did the glory appear? Look in verse 22. And Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them and came down from the offering of the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. 
But what did the glory do? Verse 24, And there came a fire from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. God manifested His presence for the purpose of creating awe to affect the behavior of the people. And the people got down low before God. They weren't dancing in the aisles. They weren't gyrating around. The people got low before God when God appeared. So, here is what you have in this tabernacle incident. Put all that together and we're going to go to the application. Moses constructed the tabernacle exactly as God commanded According to, every, according to every stipulation God made. The purpose for doing that was that this would be a place of worship where God might dwell with his people. And then God's presence filled the tabernacle was manifested, folks, in response to appropriate worship, those sacrifices. Appropriate worship and I should have said this earlier, I'm primarily thinking of corporate worship today because you can worship God individually. That's, I, I should have said that first at the outset of the message. I'm primarily thinking of when we gather, when the church gathers. But appropriate worship can cause, listen, remember the introduction? What can cause the glory to fall? Appropriate worship can cause God to manifest His presence and display His glory. It can cause Him to dwell with us. Now, what are we to make of all of that? Well, let me go back to the question I asked in the introduction. What circumstances must exist in worship for God's glory to fall and His presence to be manifested? And man, I think we all feel the same about this. That when we meet for corporate worship, we want God to manifest himself and do a work in our midst, right? Okay, what can cause that to happen? That won't happen automatically just because a group of Christian people get together and call it a worship service. What circumstances must be true for God to manifest his presence and to bless his people? Well, we've seen those things, but let's try this to draw this together a little bit. The first thing, folks, that would have to be true is regards what I put there in your notes, the fundamental rule for worship. And I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. And again, as I've said repeatedly in these messages, in times like this, I'm drawing from some of the resources that I've used and found them helpful in this regard. Now, we don't have time to read Deuteronomy 12. So, but here's what you've got. In Deuteronomy, this chapter is giving to Israel some instructions about their worship of God. In verses 2 to 4, the instructions are given about destroying the Canaanite worship centers. In verses 5 to 7, instructions are given about where they are to worship. In verses 8 and 9, instructions about when they are to worship. And in verses 15 to 28, instructions about what to offer in worship. You can just even see that visually. This whole chapter centers around God stipulating their worship. And in each of those areas, touching on their worship, God has given those instructions precisely now. Verse 8. Ye shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. Here is a statement being made at the end of 40 years in the wilderness. For 40 years, they've been using the tabernacle. All right, for 40 years they've been using the tabernacle. And this statement comes at that point and just before the people enter the land. 
The tabernacle has been assembled for 40 years ago, including the ordination of the priests, the inauguration of the sacrificial system, the observance of the holy days. But even though those things had been in place, this, folks, this verse is indicating that evidently there still had been a great deal of personal choice and custom and individual innovation that had been taking place in the worship. That's the reason it says, Moses says, ye shall not do after all the things that we are due here this day. And in other words, what do you mean? In other words, every man doing whatsoever is right in his own eyes. And that's in this chapter on worship. Folks, here is God giving through correcting his people, saying, stop doing what you think is appropriate in worship and do as I have commanded. Here is what I'm calling the fundamental rule of worship, and it's this, that all worship is chosen and determined by God himself. It is chosen and determined by God himself. It is that what goes on and the practices that are engaged in are not chosen individually. They're not left up to the discretion of an individual or a group of individuals. What takes place and the things engaged in are chosen by God. And you can see that in verse, don't do what is right in your own eyes. Worship is not to be taking place according to what is right in our eyes. What makes me feel good? What is a blessing to me? That I was doing it sincerely. Folks, all of Scripture confirms this very point. That worship is chosen and determined by God. Think of Cain and Abel. Think this morning of the golden calf incident. Think of Nabab and Abihu who offered strange fire. Think of King Uzziah. Or think of the sincere and heartfelt worship, of sincere and heartfelt worship offered to God by David and the people when they brought the ark to Jerusalem. And God slew Uzzah. Because they had the ark on a new cart. It was a new cart. But God had stipulated the Kohathites were to carry it on their shoulders with staves. And they didn't do it. And God slew a man. Here are illustrations from the Old Testament that confirm worship is not to be chosen individually, but folks, it is, I mean, we hear, this is the fundamental rule, it's to be done as God stipulates. We hear all these worship wars going on today. Well, who are the people warring against? God stipulates in the scriptures. And folks, the necessity for God prescribed, in other words, why, why, is this, why is this important? Why do you have to do it just like God said to do it? Because of what worship is. Turn to Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Why do we have to have do worship just, just as God stipulates? Because of what worship is. Look at Psalm 29, verse 1. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Folks, worship is giving God the glory or honor that is due him. Because of who he is, his name, who he is. Worship is something we do before God and to God because of the unique being that he is. So someone has defined corporate worship this way. Worship is offering to God 
the united spiritual responses of which he alone is worthy. Worship is offering to God the united spiritual responses of which alone he is worthy. What do I mean by that? Look at Psalm 95. Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. Worship is offering to God the spiritual responses of which he alone is worthy. Look at Psalm 95, verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if ye will, hear his voice. Bow down. The word means to bend the knee, and you're to kneel. The word, that word, actually, that word is not meaning, you know, kneeling the knee, but that word means to bless. Let us bend low and humble ourselves before God. Let us bless Him because He is our Maker. In other words, the focus of worship is God, not what blesses me. The focus of worship is God, and the primary objective is to give to God what He is due, the glorification of the Lord. So we give to Him today, and these are all backed up in Scripture. We give to God in our worship what He alone is worthy of, the offering, Peter says, of spiritual sacrifices. The confession of sin. The observance of his holy day. The giving of tithes and offerings. The offering of praises, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They are worship responses that God and God alone is worthy of. So we offer them to him as worship. So we give to God the responses that he alone is worthy of, and in our worship, we engage in the worshipful activities that he has prescribed. Where are those? Acts 2.42. And the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in the prayers and in fellowship, and in the breaking of bread. I got those turned around. The Apostles' Doctrine, and fellowship, and those of you who know, the definite article is in there, and the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And underneath those four headings, folks, fall all of the elements of prescribed worship. Now, I'm not aware that scripture forbids showing a gospel film or having the children perform a Christmas play or having a church family sing along or having a creation question and answer time. I'm not aware that scripture forbids that. But what it's after here is that the emphasis of our worship time is being stipulated by God. The activities are being stipulated by God. And there are these other means that we can fulfill, carry on once in a while, maybe an evangelistic outreach or something, but it's not as what is happening today where the whole service is shifting week after week after week. It's gospel films, and it's conversations, and it's chat times, and it's this, and it's that. God has stipulated, if we want His glory to fall, then we must give Him the worship that He is due, and we must involve ourselves in the prescribed activities that God has given. And folks, the priority for this, the priority for doing this, and we won't turn there because our time's about up, but folks, the, and you know this passage, the priority for doing this is found in John chapter 4 where God says he seeks people to worship him this way. God is looking for people to worship him as he has stipulated, according to man's spirit, remember that, and according to truth. Worship God in spirit 
and in truth. God is looking for people who will worship him in truth. He gives the truth. He's seeking this. He seeks people who worship him. So, folks, worship is not about me, and I'm not just on a rant today about contemporary kinds of worship. This is probably, for many of us, just confirming what we're already doing and just saying, according to the Scriptures, just keep doing it. Worship is not about me and what I like. Worship is not about what I feel and the blessing I receive. Worship is not about what the community would attend or would want to hear if they did decide come to come to church anyway. The focus of worship is God and what He has stipulated, what He has commanded. Worship is offering to God the united spiritual responses of which He alone is worthy. And if we want God to manifest His presence among us when we gather, then this is the worship that we must offer. Hey, <laughs> no wonder the glory of God filled the tabernacle. No wonder the glory of God fell when they offered the first sacrifices. No wonder the glory of God filled Solomon's temple when he prayed. People were getting low before God and offering to him what he alone is worthy of. So, Tozer again. We're saved to worship God. God wants worshipers first. Jesus did not redeem us to make us workers. He redeemed us to make us worshipers. And then out of the blazing worship of our hearts springs our work. The Christian church exists to worship God first of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time today. Thank you, Lord, that you receive our worship and that we can offer to you spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable in your sight. Thank you, Lord, for ministering to us today. Confirm what we know. Strengthen these things, Lord. And help us to honor you and to worship you. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.